1: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 82 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is RuPaul, the most famous drag queen in the world and now an Emmy nominee in the category of Outstanding Host of a Reality Show for his landmark program on Logo TV, RuPaul's Drag Race, which is now in its eighth season. Over the course of our conversation, this true original, who is now 55 years old, talks about his personal journey of discovery. He recounts the struggles that led up to him becoming a controversial household name in the early 90s. He clarifies what drag is and is not. He explains why he deliberately dropped off the scene during the George W. Bush administration and what subsequently convinced him to re-enter the public eye with a reality TV show, even though he hates the genre and no longer loves to dress in drag. And he breaks down the purpose and impact of RuPaul's Drag Race, a show that airs across America and in 25 countries across the world, and that he hopes will offer tortured young souls of the sort that he once was reassurance that they are not alone. It's a powerful, emotional, and enlightening conversation with a person we all know of, but few of us know much about. I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's go to it. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
1: In the car before my kid's PTA meeting.
0: Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
1: I never win and tell.
0: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: RuPaul, thank you so much for joining us. We always begin by asking, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living?
0: I'm from San Diego, California, just a little over 100 miles from where we are right now. And my folks were these country-ass people from Louisiana, and they were part of the probably the second wave migration of black Southerners to either the north or to the west. Actually, I think to the north was the first and second migration, and then to the west was probably the third. My mother, ultimately, she worked for Planned Parenthood, and then that was after the divorce, because before that, she, she, I think she had some secretarial skills. But my father worked for McDonnell Douglas in the electrical wiring. They would make aircraft for the military. McDonnell Douglas, I don't know if they're still in business. It's hard. It's like with the record business and the movie business. Companies come and go, and they merge, and I don't know what happens That's to them.
1: That's true. Yeah. One thing that I read was that as early as five... It sounds like you knew that you were in some ways different from a lot of the other people you were around and that you wanted out of San Diego. Is that fair to say?
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I wanted to get the hell out of there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> what was it about... Other people were they
0: bullies? What was the situation? The situation wasn't really that they were bullies; is that they were just really dumb. You know, I have a sixth grade education, but I am highly intelligent, and I was hearing, seeing, and smelling, and interpreting things that I could tell they were not, mm-hmm. and I felt like. That twilight zone episode that comes up once a week in conversation, where that that girl comes to the planet to get her face fixed, or there was a switch. Oh, okay. I, 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 I don't have the remember beholder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Where I just felt like I was the boy who fell to Earth, and that my tribe was somewhere out in this world waiting for me, but they were not <laughs> San in Diego. San Diego <laughs> or in my neighborhood. Right. You know, actually, as a kid, I used to go out to the beach. We didn't live near the beach in San Diego, but I would on my own at, like. 13, 12, catch the bus by myself out to go to the beach. And when I'd come back, the kids in the neighborhood would say, you must think you're better than us. You must think you're white or something. Or... And I understood what they were doing. I Even at that young age, I understood that they felt threatened by my ability to self-start, to follow my desires. And I had to sort of play possum a lot of times when I was there. I had to play smaller than I actually felt like I was so I knew the solution was to get away
1: now did you know or realize even at that point that you were gay and do you think they realized it was that part of the issue that they were having with you
0: no I think that was one of the issues that they had I was told even early age before I even know what sexuality was about that that I was gay or that I was a sissy or a punk that's what they said back then Um, I didn't use the words gay. They said, you're a sissy, you're a punk. And then I knew that I had something that it was more than just being gay early on. I knew that early on because I was super, I still am super sensitive. My intuition is, is, is on point. You know, I knew that back then. Actually, you know, my father, who I could tell at an early age, wasn't a buddy of mine from another time and uh, and when I saw him I was like, buddy, we're here let's rule the school but he could not see me and I no matter what I did he couldn't see you know, I, I could sing I could dance I could do whatever you want jokes I got jokes I could do it for you you know he could not see me because he could not see himself now I of course I figured all this out much many years later but as a kid back then I wasn't sure what I needed to do. To, to get him to see that. You're saying,
1: do you think he was living a, a closeted life? Or-
0: no, no. He was like most people on this planet, he was oblivious to the fact that he was alive. He was a ghost. And most people are not conscious of the gift they're given. Most people get the script or the role that they're supposed to play and they play it to a T and they can't figure out why they're so unhappy. They can't figure out why this world is so boring and and non-eventful. And it's, and it's because you're not living your authentic life. You're not awake. There's zombies. That's why zombie movies and zombie culture is, is such an important parable in our lives because most people are not awake or are not present for their own lives. And he was not.
1: So your journey to becoming fully awake, I guess, really began, from what I understand, when you were 15 and moved with your older sister and her husband, out of San Diego, went to Atlanta. What happened in Atlanta that sort of changed your perspective on things?
0: Well, first of all, I I was always fully awake. That was the problem. It was like being on an operating table and saying, doctor, I could feel that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the anesthesia is not working. So uh, at 10 years old is when I got into drugs and alcohol, and I was an awakened baker for years. So my solution as a kid was to try to anesthetize myself like I sensed that everyone else was and to sort of say, you know, wake me when this is over because I'm not digging this. But when I moved to Atlanta at 15, which was of really like my bar mitzvah because I <laughs> got to meet my tribe. But, well, be, but before that, I knew my tribe existed because in San Diego, on public television, PBS, Monty Python would come on. And I thought, they're out there. (laughs) The irreverence, the fun, the hoo-hoo-hoo approach to life, which is what I had, I knew that my people were out there. So I I, I found refuge and sanctuary in television and in, in irreverent comics like Monty Python. And then at 15, I moved to Atlanta and got into a School of Performing Arts there. And I'd always been in the performing arts even when I did make it to school. I was part of that kind of stuff um, before Atlanta. And then when I got to Atlanta, I I got to meet all the other kids in school performing arts. And that was my tribe. That was it. And so you were
1: making low-budget films and music and all kinds of things there that were sort of creative outlets for you.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I've always been creative. But when I found my tribe is when we really got to get into motion and we would do, you know, Movies and do whatever, Every, anything that was creative, we would do it, and it was great. How
1: did you first learn about the world of drag? There wasn't a RuPaul to show you the way that you know. For a lot of people, you've been integral to their process of discovery. So, for you, what? How did how did you learn about things?
0: Well, first of all, it, even as a kid, I understood that you're born naked and the rest is drag. I understood that everybody was playing a role, and that that's why when I finally saw, when I was a kid, I saw Annie Hall and the character Albie, Woody Allen's character, talks to people on the street at random, and they say, well, the problem, and he'll just bring up a conversation, and they start talking like they break the fourth wall. And I always felt that way as a kid. I always thought, I wanted to say to someone, are you seeing what I'm seeing here with, the, with how this is all a facade? But I couldn't get anybody to, to break the, the fourth wall, so to speak. So drag, it was a natural extension of that way of looking at the world. It wasn't necessarily male-female. It was just role-playing. It was just clothes. And when I found my tribe, they had the same viewpoint, which is this irreverent breaking-the-fourth-wall storyline. You know, I'd seen drag in media. I mean, Bugs Bunny was my first introduction to drag. <laughs> and even his approach to it, which was, which was a tool to get what he wanted out of it and mostly it was he was winking as he did it he was being funny and where someone would be chasing him and they'd i guess it was um elmer fudd is that who chased him yeah. elmer would open the door and bugs bunny would turn around covering his breast and and groin area and go "Ah!" you know and scream (laughs) all all the while winking knowing that that would make Elmer Fudd close the door real quickly and go, "Oh, I've just done something wrong. <laughs> Buying Bugs Bunny more time." Right. B- brilliant. Yeah. But, and you know, in cartoons, traditionally in our culture, my tribe, the irreverence mm-hmm. ones, have been able to sneak in subversive wink-wink ideology into pop culture, because the unwashed masses, if you set it to him point Blake, right. they would burn you as a witch. So this is the way we've been able to get that information into pop culture. So, so Bugs Bunny was really he my was first introduction. In.
1: That is so interesting. Now, do you remember the first time that you dressed in drag, and also how you felt versus the way you felt when you were not in drag? Do you remember what was there an event that started it?
0: Yeah, you know, first of all, as a kid, I always dressed in everything. I would use all the tools as a human to express myself as human. No sexual connotation to it. It was just stuff, right? So I always did. Even in school I would wear whatever the hell I wanted to wear, plaid and stripes, cowboy outfit, a sailor outfit. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't wear my sister's clothes, but my my sister Renetta would told me that even at Four, I would run around the house in her dress and things like that. I just love the And your the parents textures. didn't
1: give you a hard time about that? or They
0: like- were wrapped up in their own vampire drama that that didn't involve us. We were just bit players in their bigger drama, which is a whole other story. Sure. But then, years later, when I was in high school at the School of Performing Arts in Atlanta, Georgia, I dressed in, as a character in a Tennessee Williams play called Camino Real where I played nursey and the reaction I got from everyone I took note because people responded in a way in a sexual way that I've never experienced before and the same thing happened several years later in my band when we dressed up in drag everybody in the band dressed up in drag and it was gender f-word drag it's a style of drag that's punk rock and so and politically you know, anarchist, you know, and smeared lipstick and combat boots. But the reaction I got was very different from anything I've experienced. It was a sexual thing, and people have never seen me as a sexual being. But in drag, for the first time, I could see that sort of glazed-over look that men get when they become sexually interested, which is, A, very scary... (laughs) <laughs> and, and then be very powerful because you think, hmm. I thought, huh. I could use this somehow. Yeah. And that was the, those were the benchmark touchstone areas of my first uh, uh, forays into drag.
1: Now you have spoken about drag in a sort of historical context. that I thought was very interesting. You said drag has been represented through the witch doctor, the shaman, the court jester, and the purpose of drag is to remind our culture to not take itself so seriously. Was that context stuff that you had early on or is that now looking as you know as you've become so associated with it and you've been in, in involved for decades is this stuff that you've learned along the way
0: it is i learned it along the way i i intuitively knew it early on as a kid just because i knew of the power of clothes and how you can how people are easily manipulated by what they see what the 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 facade of something is. I understood that. But as I got into it, and as I discovered it, I understood how it has been that tool throughout the ages. You know, I had my own sort of come-to-Jesus moment with drag when I decided to go from gender F-word style of drag into Glamorama or because, first of all, it started with when I moved to New York and I needed to really make money, I needed to make money as a go-go dancer. So I went from gender gender fuck style of drag into what I called my Black Hooker Soul Train Dancer style of drag, which was very sexy. I I decided to shave my legs. I shaved my chest. And put in, you know, boobs and not fake boobs, but you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. push-up bra and right. socks and all that kind of stuff. And I, I was saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for the tip money. And I made <laughs> my living go-go dancing and hosting and lip-syncing songs in clubs in New York. But it felt weird initially because it, the sexuality of it, and it just felt like I crossed a line. So I had to reconcile that and also understand where my apprehension in approaching that had come from so in discovering the history of drag that's when i r- realized that drag was what the shamans and the witch doctors and the, even the court gesture which was there to as a constant reminder to people that this body is not who you really are. This body is a manifestation of... you know. Actually, we don't even have words in the English language or in any any language that describes exactly what we're doing here on this planet. We are the manifestation of the power of the universe. That's as close as we can get to describing what we humans are doing here, but intuitively, deep in the recesses of our bodies, we know what we're doing here. We've just momentarily forgotten you know, and that's what drag is there it's to remind you of the source.
1: Now, can you help me understand one thing? Because I, I think it was maybe a year or two ago, saw a Broadway production that Harvey Firestein put on. I think it was Casa Valentina, actually. And this was about. Oh me- yes, I remember know, that. You know yes. Yeah. So I guess the, in that case, it was, you know, decades and decades ago where men who desired to be dressed as women the only place they could do that was to go to sort of a resort where there they were able to do it without any concern of repercussions often their wives whoever didn't know about it sometimes they came along with them but my question is for you was it ever a desire to pass as a woman or you were always more interested in a performance element of acknowledging that you were a man being a woman
0: Right, no, it was never about being a woman at all. Woman has not as yeah. not ever a part of the thing. It was always about f you to society. This is this is the la- in a male dominated culture. This is the greatest taboo you can do. This is the thing that boys are not supposed to do in a male dominated right. culture. That's what it was really all about. And I know for the. Casa de uh,
1: Casa Valentina, yeah.
0: yeah, that is that's more of a fetish storyline, and it was never a fetish thing for me at all. I it was something that I stumbled onto that I realized I could do really well and make a lot of money at it. And and it was also, uh, initially is something to say, it was the Reagan era, it was and I was saying, F you to the Reagan era, right. and all of that kind of stuff. And then even as a kid before that, it had more to do with playing with all the colors in the crayon box. Then me understanding that other people interpreted me in a sexual way was there's a sort of sense of power there. Was with it straight men that were fine? All men. All men. We're, you and I are both men. Yeah. We both know that ultimately any hole will do. <laughs> so you're talking
1: about the setting the timeline. This was in the 80s where early 80s, you're still in Atlanta. You were becoming a sort of a local celebrity, right? Mm -hmm. Through cable access programs and and clubs. Clubs, Yeah. Then 87, you moved to New York, as you just mentioned, and there it was go-go dancing in the East Village at different parties, right? Mm -hmm. So what was, as you see it, the big break? I heard about something where in 1989... You were in the Love Shack music video. Mm-hmm. Was that to you a, a big break at that time?
0: Definitely, yeah. Well, before that, I moved to New York the first time in '84, and I stayed for six months. And the city promptly spit me out because it was a—it was so hard. I was sleeping in Central Park on the piers and in, in the West Village on people's couches. You name it, and it just didn't stick in the So I had to go back to Atlanta, and then I moved back to New York in '87. And that's when I've been there ever since. The real big break was in 89 when I moved back after my Saturn returns. Because I, I came out here to Los Angeles for a hot minute to make something happen. And it wasn't. And I came back. Anyway, I became the queen of Manhattan when I in 1989, which was an annual thing that the club owners and society club society people would put together anyway and after I, my reign as that of the queen of Manhattan which um, was a
1: very big deal was a big
0: deal it was a really big deal i decided to quit drinking and doing chemicals <laughs> 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 and to get really serious about it so i started making a demo tape i enlisted the help of my my buddies who had made my first album uh, years earlier in 86 and they became my managers and we worked on crafting a strategy to get me above 14th Street so to speak and so uh, and it, it actually worked we got a record deal through Tommy Boy who's distributed through Warner Brothers who were primarily a hip-hop outfit they were they'd done Queen Latifah, and they were doing um, Naughty by Nature and so all these other people, and and that was the big break.
1: And just so people understand, it's not that you got these record deals because they thought there's some drag market that's going to go for this. You actually have a very nice voice, right? Separate from any of this.
0: Well, you know, listen. This is the thing. we're here at the Hollywood Reporter. If you really want to break down what show business is. <laughs> <laughs> you know most everyday ears really can't hear this conversation you know we we could we could talk shop but show business talent is probably number 3 <laughs> on the list of things that allow you to make it in show business first of all you have to you have to want it you have to want it you have to create relationships you have to understand who you're marketing your services to so I knew that first of all, I have I'm a charismatic person. I'm a likable person. I knew that that was something I could sell. My ability to act and sing and dance, sure, I could do it. I'm not the greatest at it, but what separates me from the kids from kids who in the neighborhood I came from in the East Village, who all wanted the same thing or said they wanted the same thing. A lot of them didn't have the stick withness, the ability to roll up their sleeves and get to work that's what i have i am ambitious also i can strip away the facade and this is from my drag history and my my history as an outsider looking in i understood what it would take to get me the secret combination the chemistry combination to make it work for me so yeah i can sing i can dance i can do all those things am i the best oh hell no <laughs> but when you look when you look at the biggest acts in the history of show business A lot of them, honestly, not the best singers, not the best actors. Just showmen. They are showmen, and they know what they're selling and who they're selling it to.
1: So the thing that you were selling that really got bought to run with this metaphor was supermodel. You better work. The first big album and single out in late '92, and that just blew you up, right? Yeah. Suddenly you're a guest on Arsenio Hall. You're on MTV. You're you've got your own show on VH1. Mm -hmm. It was around that time, just to speak anecdotally, I was like seven, eight years old and I remember flipping through the channels and I had never seen a person like this before. Mm -hmm. It was totally new to me. And I'm sure for a lot of people that was their discovery that this world existed. For you, what was that time in your life like where, like I say, I'm sure a lot of other people were were discovering a a kind of person they'd never seen before. Mm -hmm. Were you getting... Widely embraced or were you dealing with a lot of hostility?
0: What was what was it like? I was getting embraced because we had we had cracked the code. We had worked out the perfect combination to make this thing work. And there had been others before me. You know, obviously there was Boy George and Sylvester and Divine. Divine yeah. Yes, had come before me. But the element that I added to this thing, aside from the fact that, I, and this I can talk shop, and this is not conceited, it's not ego. I'm a likable person. I'm a there's a kindness and there's a sweetness to me, and I meet mean. mean I'm not malicious or, you know, I do sassy, I don't do bitchy. <laughs> so we also, I say we because Randy and Fenton, who, who own the production company, who are my buddies from the East Village, who I've been working with over the past 31 years, something like that, they do the RuPaul's Drag yeah, Race and yeah. stuff. What we did was we took the sexuality out of it. The character that I projected was sexy but wasn't sexual and that's a huge thing especially with Americans. Americans are afraid of sex. They have a certain sterilized sexuality that they're they're comfortable with. And that element actually propelled me into grandpa and grandma's house and Betty and Joe Birkins living room and that was the secret combination. Interesting.
1: Well, as you became more prominent and now you were probably hearing from and seeing more people from the drag community than you'd ever dealt with before, were you able to reach any conclusions about things that people who wind up in drag, you know, is there a common thread, like have they all had similar experience, not all any, mm-hmm. about anything, but is there generally a uh, something that drives them into that course of life?
0: Yeah, there are a few different distinctive versions of that. For obviously, transsexuals are, are, are very different from what drag is doing. So, you know, we know about transsexuals. Transsexuals uh, identify as females. Then there are crossdressers or who are into it for the fetish of it. And then the drag queens, which is the category that I fall into it. We are the F.U. society kids. We're the ones who are breaking the fourth wall and who are saying, you know what? You guys told me to do this and that, but I'm going to do this out of of a punk rock anarchist state of mind. That's that's where that's where I sit with. So it. it's
1: l- less anything to do with sex than it is about you know, you could just as easily be, like you're saying, a punk rock musician. It would, be the, it would be that's more similar to where you're coming from than a transsexual person is. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, transsexual, in fact, is kind of the complete opposite because drag queens are saying um, identity. Ha! <laughs> um, transsexuals are saying identity is very serious to me and I need you to understand what my identity is. But, you know, on the other side of that, the complete other side of that is, is where a drag sits, which is identity. We're shapeshifters. We're doing this out of, out of actually paying homage to the source or why we came here in the first place, which was play with all the toys, color with all the colors. Let's do it all. No, no judgment. No, you know, but the truth of who I really am is, is I am of the source.
1: Another thing that happened as you were growing in prominence, I think, was that you were sort of expected by some people to be the ambassador of the drag community. You're gonna, and I know uh, from reading other things, it would potentially, it would sometimes get grating when you've got Barbara Walters or somebody asking you to constantly explain some of the things that we're talking about. But I think almost for in in their case, it wasn't coming from a place of curiosity always. It was almost like trying to. Get you to make a headline or something. It seemed like it was it was fishing for stuff. What was your experience being covered by the media? Did you feel that you were treated fairly?
0: I don't care about being treated fair. I, that's the, you know that's that's their thing, you know, or being taken seriously. I'm an entertainer. I'm here to go to to tell jokes and to entertain. Ultimately, though, um, certain news outlets had their own agenda that they wanted to use me as part of. Even even some of the gay rights groups. Wanted to use me to uh, for their part of their agenda, and you know that's not what I'm here for. I'm first, first and foremost, I'm an entertainer. And if somebody could get some insight into life, or some some joy, or or uh, some release in their life from my experience, I say right on. But I had to always remember that my my mission statement was a I'm a human being and I'm here to live my life, and b I'm an entertainer. I sing songs. I, I act and I, I, I perform. So the political aspect of it, you know, that's, that's, that's the, the least of, of what I'm here for. But my experience with all of that was I had to keep myself centered. And I, I, during the Bush era, I, I, got a, I really got fed up with having to explain so much. So actually, I retreated for a while. I, I needed to take time away from the business to really get back to the source of why I want to do this in the first place. And reading about that,
1: I understand that it was even a few years before George W. Bush came into power in two thousand one that you started to see signs on the wall that things were not going in a great direction in terms of the way that people in drag were being treated or regarded or whatever. I mean, there was one thing where you talked about going on Hollywood squares, I think, in the late nineties, mm-hmm. and it was just it was just an uncomfortable
0: experience? I could feel, even with the audience, there was a shift. I could feel that. And I thought, hmm, that was the moment I knew I'm going to I'm gonna take some time away from this. What do you think had changed? You know, humans, they react to things in waves. It's interesting to watch them. Let me just back up. You know, being this kid who felt like I fell to earth, I knew that I didn't really fit in. So I thought, you know what? I'm smart. I can figure this out. I'll figure out how to fit in. So I did my research as a kid. I'm a young kid at this point. did my research and I thought, okay, I got it. I, I know how to do it. And now that I know how to do it, I want nothing to do with trying to fit in. Right. Because humans are, it's like lemmings. People, They're like sheep. A lot of people don't have their own point of view. They're focused on what the group, a group, mentality is and i never wanted to be a part of that so when i noticed the shift and when i'm in, in one of the squares on the hollywood squares <laughs> i thought get away
1: that's so interesting because you could i guess sense you're saying like just a shift back to a conformist
0: a fear it was there was a hostility in there there was a certain fear especially after you know with 9-11 even before nine eleven, there was a certain and humans you know you can choose fear, you can choose love. I would say that most humans respond to fear over love. Most people don't have faith in love. So when that's the case, get the hell out of Dodge. <laughs> you, know, it's not, it's not,
1: you can't change their minds, you know? Well, so what was it then that a few years later, I guess at 2007, 2008, what was it that made you decide to come back and give it another
0: shot? Well, I I continued to work, not at the same pace that I had before. I took time out to to have barbecues with my nieces and nephews and have parties and, and do human things, you know, because I'm ambitious. And even when my number came up in show business, I hit it hard because I know how I know how I know what show business is. Okay. You, you, One minute you're hit, the next minute you're something that rhymes with hit. <laughs> and so I hit it hard initially and then I retreated. I stepped away from the canvas, so to speak. What made me change was I was offered a job in radio again at a station in New York. And I took it and moved back to New York. And then I got invigorated again by the city. I I kept my place in New York all these years. I've lived in the same place for 20, 21 years, but also had lived out here. So I I moved back to New York and then I got invigorated again. Something I could tell that the winds of change had had uh, had happened and I decided to redo a movie I'd done before called Star Booty, mm-hmm. and I, I'd started working on Star Booty, I don't know Star Booty seven or eight. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Your franchise, <Yeah>. yes.
0: <laughs> in '05, right, and then worked on that, and then brought it to festivals and stuff in '07. By the time it was really finished, and Randy, who uh, who's with the World of Wonder, who's my old buddy I've worked with all these years, he could tell I was back in the game again. So he said, are you willing to go out and do some pitches for some reality shows now? Because before, I was opposed to doing reality shows because I thought it was hostile and it was mean-spirited, and I didn't want anything to do with it. So by '07, promoting Star Booty, he said, are you ready to go out? I said, sure, let's do it. So we took um, the concept for Drag Race to about five different networks, and Logo... Who previously, the previous regime of Logo wanted nothing to do with me. (laughs) They actually, the new regime, pretty much, and this never happens in Hollywood, they pretty much bought the show in the room as we pitched it. Wow. And that never, rarely ever happens.
1: Now, is Logo an offshoot of VH1?
0: They're an offshoot of Viacom, and VH1 is an offshoot of Viacom as well as MTV and several, and even CBS is part of that. yeah. Yeah. And they, at that point, had been in business for maybe four or five years, but really hadn't had any hits. They had had some, they had, had Noah's Ark, which was the most mm-hmm. noise they had made on their network. And, um, and then
1: the rest is history. Yeah, you put them on the map. So in case there's someone listening who hasn't yet seen RuPaul's Drag Race, can you just briefly describe the format for them? It might pique their interest.
0: Well, RuPaul's Drag Race is a competition reality show where we choose... 12 or 14 girls, drag queens, from around the United States to compete in a series of challenges where the winner of, of the whole shebang gets $100,000. And the challenges are really based on my career and the things I've done. So we put them through the paces. You know, I've done radio and movies and television and written scripts and written songs and produced songs and recorded songs and done theater. I've done everything, yeah. you name it. Yeah. Um, so... The challenges are based on that, and the winner emerges. But the real key to the show, the real what's it's about, it's, it's about, the show is about the tenacity of the human spirit. Because throughout all of these challenges we put these kids through, we get to see them break through. A lot of people, and I talked about the kids I, came, uh, I grew up with, I say grew up with, in the East Village and mm-hmm. show business, a lot of them couldn't make the trip above 14th Street because this is where I'm going to preach here, this is where you touch touch your radio, touch whatever, touch yourself, I'm gonna get real here. A lot of humans cannot release themselves from their limited perception of themselves. So a lot of the kids when I made the hit the big time who a lot of the kids I reached out to the kids in the neighborhood who were so talented to say come on you'd be perfect in the writers room with us or you'd be perfect in the makeup room or you'd be perfect as a sidekick for me or something. They couldn't make that step because they couldn't leave behind their limited perception of who they thought they were. You know somehow they felt they felt I'm a starving artist, and that's what I am. And so that's what they'll be forever and ever. They couldn't transition into their higher self. And that is the crux of our show, is to watch people make that breakthrough. You know, some people will have a comedy challenge on RuPaul's Drag Race, and some people say, but I'm not funny. It's like, well, if you say you're not funny, then you're not funny, but I see that you can do this. The, re- the reason you were chosen for this competition is is because I could see that you've got it. And that is, again and again, that's the resurrection that I have had throughout my life. Even the kids going back to me going to the beach and them saying, you think you're better than me? What they were actually saying in real life, they were saying, you are better than us. I think you're better than me. That's what they're saying. So anyway, that's what the show is no, about. that's
1: great. And is it tough for you, because you really get to know these people, is it tough when the... Time comes at the end of each episode and it's either, you know, Shante or Sachet away. Is that a tough thing to have to tell somebody?
0: Actually, you know what? It's actually not. And I'll tell you why. Because this is show business. Yeah. The fact that they've got on to the show, they're already a star. And even in life, lots of tragedies, lots of, in show business, in life, lots of horrible things happen. Sometimes in my life, the most horrible things that happen turn out to be the best thing that could have happened. You know, in this life we have to say goodbye to certain people, loved ones, family members. The fact that they've gotten to live this life in the first place means they're a winner. The same as on our show. You get to be on the show, you're a winner. And that's how you look at life. You have to see it from, I like to call it, you have to hit the Google Earth button. You have to hit that Google Earth button to see the whole landscape, to see what's come before and then you have a proper perspective. You know, it's better to have lived and love. I mean, what's it's the better Tennyson? better to have
1: loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Loved it all. Yeah. I think that's Tennyson, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Right on. Yeah. And that's what it's all about. So at the end of every episode, you repeat the same mantra. Can you share what that is and why it's important to
0: you? I say, if you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else? And it's important because... The act of loving yourself, learning how to do it is a daily process. It is I do in the this morning I got up at fifty-five years old. First thing I do is I stretch. I stretch because being flexible, both figuratively and literally, Mm -hmm. is really what will keep you viable and, and young on this planet. Then I meditate. First I gotta say, first I pray. I pray. What do I pray to? I don't. It doesn't matter. I don't need to know what it is. I'm not a religious person. The act of prayer, to is is really is acknowledging that there's a force greater than yourself, and it's a way to decode and unhinge the ego. I have to figure a way to override or n-word rig my ego and turn it off. So that's what prayer does. Prayer says there's something beyond me. I'm not making the waves go or the weather. Anyway, the next thing I do is I meditate because that's hitting that Google Earth button, where I get to hover over myself and I get to say, oh, look at my thoughts. Interesting. Look at me. Look where I am. Look where I've come. See the whole landscape. A lot of times I'll see this morning, I saw Earth. I saw it there, just sitting there in this vast darkness, this light darkness, this thing. And there it is, unchanged it looks from that perspective it looks the exact same as it did when i came here so all of the michigas all of the <laughs> the stuff i put up with with the traffic it's like lady the light is green go all of right, that stuff right means nothing from that perspective so that's what i do in the morning and that's that's how i start the day and I, and that's part of loving myself i have to remember I'm an extension of the power that created this whole universe. You and me, we are not separate from one another. We are one thing. All of that stuff I have to remember. That's why my favorite, one of my favorite books is Animal Farm, because the book is really all about how humans forget. We forget. forget we what, what, why we had a revolution in the first place. Or what's really important. And what's important is to have fun with all the toys on the planet. Don't take life too seriously. Play with the the dresses and the the colors and the the cowboy outfits and the the nautical outfits. And you could be Thurston Howell the third today, if you'd like, or whoever. Or Ginger. Or Ginger. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Don't take life. So my 10th grade teacher told me that. He said, RuPaul, don't take life too seriously. Many of the people who compete on your show grew up
1: watching you. Some of them are young enough that they really have no memory of, of those early struggles and things that, that you went through, is it weird to think that things have come? Sure, there's always room to, to get better, of course, but is it kind of, do you kind of pinch yourself to say that, look at this, there's a whole generation of people that are able to maybe not live as totally freely as they'd like, but you've, you've made a difference.
0: I, I tell you, no, it's not lost on me. You know, even part of the morning meditation, I get to see where I've come from, even the fact that I have been given a a chance to another bite at the apple. You know, I hit the big time in, in 80, in 92. Mm -hmm. And before that, you know, I started out professionally in 82. So there was a good 10, 11 years before anything really happened. Mm -hmm. And then I hit the big time and then went away, got the opportunity to do it again, which by the way, in this business, it's very rare, Mm -hmm. very rare for you to have a comeback. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so, the fact that this show has inspired so many young people, and that I get to be the figurehead of this of this world of drag, is not lost on me. My morning meditation—that's when I get to be reminded of that.
1: Now, if it was only people who are from the drag community who were watching this show, the ratings wouldn't be what they are. Right. So. Who are these other
0: people that are watching and what, what draws them into it? I, I think it's people, anyone who's ever had a dream. Like I said, the show at the crux of the show is about the tenacity of the human spirit. I think that that's really what keeps people there. I think it's the sparkly colors and glitter and all that stuff and initially makes you you know keep the remote there on the television. But ultimately, what keeps you there, season after season, we're filming right now our ninth season. Wow is watching the human spirit. Anyone who's ever had a dream that has been put down because of that dream, or embarrassed by that dream, watches these beautiful, courageous drag queens who have clearly fought family members and society and said, I don't care what you say, I'm doing it anyway. I think that the audience members relate to that part of them because everybody in the audience has had a, a dream that other people would laugh at them for, you know? And I think that that's why people love it. And it's got to have saved some lives. You're
1: in 25 countries, and there are a lot of people who, as you look back at that time when you were five and dealing with crap from people, not everybody knows how to how to get through that and so to see that there are other people has got to be very powerful for them and that's why i wonder if for you is that the reason why you've had for a number of times now the finalists address their younger selves because maybe there's actually somebody that's listening to that and it's gonna make a difference
0: it's very very important to acknowledge that because don't get it twisted we yes we wear all this these fabulous clothes—it's all artificial—and but at its core, we are still working from that hurt place, that little boy who wanted to be acknowledged. You know, um, the, um, one of my favorite documentaries is *Paris Is Burning*, yeah. and what what makes that so brilliant is that even through the muck and mud of life's darker side, the dark night of the soul, you know, the lotus flower will bloom. And that's really what that's about. You know, um, my partner has a ranch in Wyoming that is absolutely in the middle of nowhere. And Wyoming is the least populated state in the Union, in the United States. On television, on that ranch, RuPaul's Drag Race comes (laughs) on. And I think about all the kids around the world who maybe even if it's not on television, they get it on their their smartphone or they get it on Netflix or Amazon or whatever, Hulu, who are watching this thinking, my tribe is out there. This, I'm getting choked up right now thinking about you know when I when I saw Monty Python, I felt like I was the kid who who had fallen to Earth and I'd had no one, knowing that your tribe is out there waiting for you. Just hold on long enough till you can find them or they can find you. It, that's what the that's what this show is about. Well, it's doing
1: a great service in that sense, and I just wonder how you avoid burning yourself out because it's not just RuPaul's Drag Race. There's how many other spinoffs? <laughs>
0: right now, I'm doing five different shows. How, where is there enough? How do you have enough hours in the day? <laughs> well, you know, I like to keep. I, le- <laughs> I like to keep busy. Otherwise, the voices come back. <laughs> I want to stay ahead of the voices. Right, right, right. Yeah, so I I like to work. I've always and also again, like I said, I work for. 10 11 years before anything happened and then when it did happen I had a good hard run I made a big splash then I retreated I, I went back and then the, and then I decided to return and I hit it again which is very rare I do not take that for granted one. Second, I know what this business is. I've been doing it for a long time. That's why I was always baffled by people in show business who said, I'm leaving the series. It's like, what? Are you (laughs) crazy? You're leaving a paying job? Uh, You know, Joan Rivers, my old friend Joan Rivers, who who was a big champion of my career early on, you know, actually, I opened for Joan Rivers more than any other person in my life really? in Atlantic City at the Brooklyn College. I, every, I, in the Poconos once I, op- <laughs> I I opened for her. Anyway, she was a. You know, you work hard, you work hard, and you do it. Yeah, I'm doing five different shows right now as we speak.
1: Unbelievable. And so, does that make it all the sweeter when, after years of doing this, you finally this year are now Emmy nominee RuPaul. How does that feel? It's it's
0: great. I feel great for Logo and I feel great for World of Wonder who who produced the show. But for me, you know, to, to all of a sudden be thrilled that the status quo is recognizing right. me after years of not recognizing me or, you know, it,
1: you can't suddenly start caring. No,
0: yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I can't. I'm happy for them. But that's not why I do this. And, and and again, when I came back to the business, I have to say that you know all those years leading up to getting famous, deep down, it really had to do with wanting to get my father's attention, honestly. And then, after many years of therapy and understanding that that was not a really a viable goal, and I let that go, I came back into this business with a different agenda. And my agenda is having fun, seeing the colors, enjoying the laughter, the beauty. That's the reason I get up in the morning. Because the fame and the money, that honestly, and it's hard to understand it, if you haven't, that falls away really quickly. What really gets me there and gets me to do five shows at one time is I enjoy the creativity of it. I love working with the people I work with. I love figuring out a creative, solution to to whatever's on the table even initially figuring out how do you sell a six four black drag queen with blonde hair to betty and joe beer can (laughs) how do you sell that to the unwashed masses that's a a, an equation that was meticulously figured out and we're i'm faced with those kinds of social problems all the time and i love i love that it's like a crossword puzzle (laughs) From what I understand, you've
1: you've sort of acknowledged that being in drag today for you, is it correct to say that it's it's less of an urgent feeling for you to, to actually dress up to make your point to the world that you've talked about, or at least less than it once was? Can you explain why that might be?
0: Well, first of all, you know, I I, I got into show business. I, I, was, I was born into it. I knew that this was my path. I didn't know what I would... I thought I would be David Bowie. I thought I would do something, you know, androge, whatever. Right. Drag happened, and I'm smart enough to go, hmm, that's it. Took it. But it was never like a fetish or something that I needed to do. First of all, I loved all the colors in the crayon box. So clothes, sure, wear them all. But had nothing to do with a desire to be a woman or anything like that. So... For me, it's it's a business. It's a business. So you won't see me in drag if I'm not getting paid.
1: (laughs) So like if when you go to the Emmys as a nominee now, will you be
0: dressed like you are today? I will go not in drag. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there a cash prize? <laughs> if know. there was a cash prize I would probably yeah, <laughs> go in drag.
1: But right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the last question is this. On the one hand, today the LGBT community, which I think even though the T can mean different, T like trans encompasses transsexual and would you count drag as part of LGBT? Or is drag separate and...
0: Well, I, you know, you know this is where it hit. This is a whole nother discussion yeah. because, yeah, that's a whole nother discussion. Sure, yeah, it's in the LGBT, it would be gay. Let's see, um, a lesbian, by, G is the gay, yeah. right? So, yeah, it would be part of the gay. Okay, yeah. so
1: on the one hand, the LGBT community today is more visible and accepted in society than probably ever before. Doesn't mean it's at an acceptable level, but it's... Mm-hmm more. On the other hand, there are still things like the Orlando nightclub attack or the North Carolina law that's trying to ban certain people from using restrooms or colleges talking about banning drag now because they find it homophobic or demeaning to Mm -hmm. women or whatever. Mm -hmm. So in the overall, some of it, do you think that things are getting better for people in the drag community? Can you say as sort of the, as the most Prominent drag queen of mm-hmm. all time, mm-hmm. I think. I don't think there's no, anybody it, else there that can. No, who? I'll say it. Yeah. Yes, I'm right. the
0: most famous drag right. Queen
1: right. in the world. So that being the case, <laughs> your viewpoint means more to other drag queens than anybody else, I would think. Are you encouraged by the direction things are going in?
0: I am encouraged by it. And what we're witnessing is, it's like in the TV show Downton Abbey, where the 19th century is giving way to the 20th century. And we're seeing this change and people adapting to an, a forward way of thinking. What's happening is, and this speaks to a lot of the tragedies that are happening and it speaks to what's happening politically, is that we are, the human race, we are moving forward. And what's happening is, the transformation of a butterfly from a caterpillar into a butterfly, there's a violent reaction to that. Some people are resisting this forward movement that's happening. And they are resisting because they don't want to be present for their own lives. They want to be stuck back into the bliss of ignorance and without having to care about other people's feelings. And that's what we're witnessing right now. It is getting better, but it will probably get a lot worse before it it lands, because this transformation of the human race into its higher self is not easy, and a lot of people will resist. That's why uh, politically, what's happening with Trump right now, there are so many people who are on board with him because they feel left behind, and they will be left behind. And
1: they want to go back, make and America they want to great go- again, exactly. right? Exactly. Well, exactly. Well, anyway, it's a it's a real privilege to get to talk to you, and I thank you for being so open and also tolerant of my ignorance about some of this I'm oh, trying to please, learn. Please, so. <laughs>
0: please, you're immense. You're, you're a gorgeous person. Thank
1: you. It's a treat. Thank you.